Our kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you have uh, not left us to ourselves and our own devices, but you have revealed yourself uh, in Jesus Christ and in the scriptures that testify to him and in the very word that you've inspired by your own Holy Spirit. And so we give you thanks and praise now this morning that you care about us, that you love us so much that you would reveal yourself to us. You would show us what you're like and who you are, and you would show us the way of salvation and the gift of Jesus Christ and his dying love and his rising power, and that you wouldn't just uh, let us wander along in the fog of our own imaginations, but you would show us truth. And so uh, we come now and uh, with grateful hearts, uh, ask that you would open us, open our hearts and eyes to the truth of the scriptures, Lord, as Mary heard the words of the angel and treasured up the things in her heart, Lord, as little Samuel uh, did what the prophet Eli told him and said, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Lord, let us now uh, hear what you have to say, and may we believe it and obey it, and may it change us uh, more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Uh, good morning again, and uh, I'm so grateful to be with you this morning. My name is Ryan Franchuk, like Daniel mentioned. My wife Sally is with me this morning, too. We live in Baltic, South Dakota, which is about 20 miles north of Sioux Falls uh, in the southeastern corner of the state. Uh, so about a four-and-a-half-hour drive away, and um, uh, we've got three kids there uh, at, at in Sioux Falls at Nana and Papa's house at my mom and dad's. Uh, they, this might have been a tougher drive for them to make so we're a little grateful to have a very quiet ride up here <laughs> and uh we've got to enjoy the casper's hospitality last night and this morning and so we're just thankful uh thank you thanks for inviting us for opening your hearts to us it's such a delight to be here like daniel mentioned um i'm on staff at a church uh half time as one of the pastors for preaching and teaching and discipleship at river community church in Del rapids and then the other half of my time uh you know, these proportions are rough, but I, uh, I served the Timothy Pastoral Apprenticeship as, uh, one of the, as the administrator and as one of the directors. And uh, like Daniel mentioned too, the TPA is a radically church-centered theological and ministry training program that seeks to raise up men for pastoral ministry in the context of the local church. And so rather than sort of uh, outsourcing that work to a seminary institution, and we don't have you know, necessarily anything against seminaries, but uh, uh, our our heart, our desire is that that the locus of a man's training to be a pastor, to serve the church, to serve the body for which Jesus shed his blood, uh, we want to relocate that whole training experience to that congregation, to the to the local church body, and entrust with them, their leaders, and with our TPA network that task of uh, seeing those men raised up that way. And so the TPA consists of, uh, on paper, it's a three-year program that uh, that kind of has two components, one being an apprenticeship component where the man is sort of tasked to uh, be involved at every level of his local church and get his hands dirty with the stuff of uh, week in, week out vocational ministry. And so he has a, a pastoral mentor or mentors and uh, a church family that loves and pours into him, even as he loves and pours into them. And they understand, as you have with Daniel, I think that uh, his time of training is, uh, is a time of preparation and and uh, and purpose that he would really uh, smell like the sheep and uh, get to know uh, get to know what uh, pastoral ministry is like and get actual hands-on experience doing that. The other component of the TPA program is uh, about 60 credits of uh, uh, what we 
expect to be sort of master's level work in uh, Bible and theology and, and church history and, and sort of the classic uh, academic disciplines of theology and Bible. And so, um, uh, so as men, we're a very small network of about 15 churches that partnered together to, to do this program, uh, of which Fellowship Bible Church here in Piers is one. Fellowship Bible Church in St. Cloud with Pastor Ross Treadway is also one of our partner churches. Uh, and through an interesting series of, of uh, God's uh, providences, he's knit our hearts together that way. A, a delight to to hear, uh, to reflect on that history. I remember three years ago going to, I think it was Ponderosa in St. Cloud and me with Pastor Brandon, with Daniel and Josh uh, Knuckles uh, was in, here in those days too. And, and with Pastor Ross and uh, just telling you about the program and, uh, and getting to know these guys a little bit and, uh, and just how the Lord uh, seemed to bring us together. And it was just so precious and sweet uh, as, uh, as, as I remember that so fondly. And it's been such a delight now to get to know Daniel and um, and have him uh, going through the program. And in fact, if I like, I said we're a small a small network of churches, about fifteen churches, and a small program. We have about ten students who are active at some point in the program uh, throughout spread throughout our network. And um, in the, about the approximately ten years that this program has existed, we've commissioned a number of men to go off to pastoral ministry full time. Uh, even before they had sort of finished the program. And we count that as a success because we sort of see, we understand ordination and sort of the commissioning to pastoral ministry to really be the high water mark of a man's time in the program. We don't really, we don't grant a degree in the traditional sense. Uh, we instead commend men for ministry as they're uh, affirmed by their local church. Um, and so in that time, we've sent guys off to, to go into full-time ministry uh, but n- nobody had completed the program as written. Like in our catalog, it says, this is what the program consists of. It has all these hoops you jump through, all these classes you take, all that kind of stuff. Nobody had completed it until a few months ago when Daniel completed the program as written. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so Daniel, we don't do graduation. You know, we don't uh, have pomp and circumstance. But would you would you come up here for just a sec, please? Um, as a token of our of our recognition of your hard work and and uh, and your incredible gifting and the way that Lord has has blessed you, uh, we have the very first TPA diploma. <laughs> and I know I know that you and Sam want to live light and fast. You have a heart for missions. You want you don't want to be burdened by bulky plaques and trophies and stuff. <laughs> Uh, we have this, I have this metal card made up that says the TPA, it says commendation for ministry and recognition of first program completion presented to Daniel Decker, April 24th, 2022 by the Timothy Pastoral Apprenticeship Directors. It has 2 Timothy 4, 5 on there. So this, uh, this is, uh, this is our, our official, uh, graduation certificate to you. <laughs> Here, <keep it. laughs> And there's a, a Logos gift card in your inbox too that uh, should be coming there just as, a, again, a, a, a recognition of your uh, accomplishment. And um, we're so grateful to the Lord for you and for Sam, your wife, and uh, and just your being a part of our, our network um, has been so, tr- so great. And Pastor Brandon uh, has been such an encouragement and partner in this work too. So thank you for having us this morning. Um, I, I know we we want to get into God's word now, and so I'll um, I'll shift gears a little bit, and we'll consider Second Timothy chapter one, and we'll uh, see what the Lord would have us know uh, from this text this morning. 
So uh, let, if you yeah, have your scripture, have your Bible with you, uh, let's go ahead and dive in uh, to these seven verses and, uh, and ask and, and seek the Lord's help in his face now. As we contemplate these words here, Paul is, this is, you know, his, just his greeting uh, right away in the beginning uh, as he had written a previous letter to Timothy as well. And the commentators tell us Paul is likely in Ephesus at this point, or sorry, Timothy is uh, probably in Ephesus and Paul is writing to him. He had left him there. We see in first Timothy in order to sort of put, put into order stuff and to, to keep the teaching on track. And Paul has this, uh, you know, intimate greeting to Timothy and uh, and he tells him then in verse seven, uh, verse six, and verse seven, uh, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is on you through the laying on of my hands. And you know, there's kind of a long debate I think in humanity about the nature of, uh, on the one hand, sort of in natural and innate talent, versus on the other hand, just the raw time of practice when it comes to like a sport or a craft or a trade or a uh, some discipline of some kind, right? What's more important? Is it more important to have that innate gifting, that innate natural ability for something? Uh, you know, like uh, like so many professional athletes seem like they were born with just this natural ability to do something. Or is it more important that someone put in the work, right? Put in the time, the long hours, the practices, the the study, the training, the preparation, the practice of the craft, of the trade. Um, and... I read about a study this week where um, there was a man who researched in the field of music, in in classical music in particular, he researched 500 of the most popular, uh, well-known pieces of classical music. And um, and his question was sort of, what does it take uh, from the time that a person sets their mind to studying and creating music to the time where they create a masterwork? You know, like like they've reached kind of the pinnacle of 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 their ability in terms of creation of music. What does it take? And he found that uh, with only three exceptions, it took over 10 years from the time that a person set their heart and, and practiced to music until the time that they created what was recognized as a masterwork of music. Uh, at least, uh, 10 years or more that it took. There were only three exceptions and those were in years eight and nine. <laughs> Uh, all that to somewhat seemingly say that this common thread is that it was the time, it was the practice, it was the exercise of their craft, exercise of their discipline, of their study that, uh, that, that made the difference. So talent was deeply important, of course, and you'd think about so many of the great composers like uh, Bach and Mozart and those, those sorts of guys that have obviously a genius about them, uh, and yet it wasn't separate, it wasn't absent from putting in this incredible hard work, uh, disciplined practice of their craft to truly excel. And I would venture to say this morning, as we read Paul say, fan into flame the gift of God, which is on you through the laying on of my hands. With the ministry gifts of God to you and me, it requires a renewed, vigorous, spirit-empowered exercise of our gifts that we might put them into practice for the Lord's use, for the good of the church. That seems to be the main point, I think, of this text, right? That in light of Timothy's godly mentors, Paul himself and his grandmother and his mother, 
and their spiritual investment in him. And in light of the resultant faith that Timothy then had, Paul says, I'm sure it now resides in you. Paul then exhorts him to this renewed, vigorous, spirit-empowered practice of his gifts, of service to the church and to the world. And so I don't want to do anything really fancy this morning. I just want to kind of step through these verses and just show you, uh, as I'm showing myself, four observations, I think, that have uh, importance in light of this uh, main point that uh, Paul is exhorting Timothy and really exhorting you and me as well to a renewed, vigorous, spirit-empowered exercise of the gifts that he's given us. Uh, four observations. The first one in verses two through four is uh, we see the importance of spiritual intimacy. Spiritual intimacy. You maybe remember, uh, so look, in verse two, it just comes out in Paul's words, right? Timothy, my beloved child, is <laughs> not his biological dad, right? It, it had only probably known him for, you know, less than, less time than Timothy had been alive, perhaps. And yet, he describes him in these these uh, deeply paternal, intimate words, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. You maybe remember that Paul had picked Timothy up from a city called Lystra. Uh, we read about that in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. Uh, and if you go back a few chapters in Acts, Paul had been to Lystra a few years earlier, proclaiming the gospel, bringing the gospel of Jesus there. and um, And presumably... Uh, Timothy's mother and grandmother had been early converts of that, uh, the result of that missionary journey that Paul had made to Lystra. And it says in Acts 16 that when Paul got there again, um, it, it describes Timothy's dad simply as a Greek, but his mother, on the other hand, is described as Jewish and a believer. And so Paul had uh, Timothy accompany him on his travels from there. He, he identified him as one in, on whom had, you know, there was potential for. Uh, the work that he was doing, the ministry work that he was doing. So he had him accompany him on his travels and uh, and share in his ministry work. And we know from 1 Timothy 1, like I said, that uh, he had him stay in Ephesus to help the church there to remain faithful to its doctrine and combat false teachers and to read and teach Scripture. He said, remember, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture and to the teaching and to set an example for the believers. And uh, And so Timothy was essentially a ministry apprentice of Paul's. He went where Paul went. He did what Paul did. He learned. He grew. He took responsibility himself. Uh, and, and so now you see kind of the inspiration behind the name of the, the pastoral training program that I get to serve as one of the directors of, the Timothy Pastoral Apprenticeship. <laughs> this is this example of kind of spiritual intimacy and mentorship uh, and hands-on ministry experience and the process of preparation is just so key, such a vital uh, value of ours. Indeed, it drives our whole enterprise as a program. And in a spiritual sense, Paul was a, Timoth- uh, was a father to Timothy, uh, seemingly in the absence of Timothy's biological dad. And you just see this closeness, this deep familiarity and love that Paul had for this young man. It says um, in verse 3, I thank God whom I serve as I did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. It just never has him out that very far from his mind, never very far from his prayers. He's always remembering Timothy, thanking God for him. He says in verse 4, As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Uh, Is this absence from Timothy, which he expects is going to be remedied pretty soon as you read further on in 2 Timothy. This absence, he says, is it's, it's rending my heart. I can't wait 
to see you again, to be with you, to share the fellowship that we've enjoyed. Um, and, and I may be filled with joy. So this is a man that Paul has, you know, in the, in the idiom that we use, he's poured into this guy, right? Poured into him. He spent countless hours with him. He shared in hard labor with him. He's wept with and wept for. Um, and, uh, and I'm just so grateful for this example and for you know partners like you as Fellowship Bible Church and Brandon and Daniel and others who are involved in this sort of work that we're trying to do in, in the TPA, the Timothy Pastoral Apprenticeship. Uh, we're, we're seeking to emulate this same sort of spiritual intimacy in terms of helping a man get ready to go do the ministry that God's calling him to do. You know, for me, in my life, I was a man um, named Monty Loudenslager who's since passed away, gone to be with the Lord. Uh, and when I was a college student at North Dakota State University in Fargo, uh, many years ago now, I uh, I remember the very first Sunday I was at his church. It was the very first Sunday that I was in town as a college student, young freshman uh, from rural, rural North Dakota, uh, my first weekend in the big city of Fargo. And uh, I remember talking, meeting the pastor at this church that I decided to go to. My, uh, my grandfather, my grandmother went there and uh, I didn't know it yet, but my wife's parents went to that church too. And uh, um, and I remember meeting him that very first Sunday and telling him, he was asking, oh, what are you studying? What are you interested in? And I said, well, I'm a computer science major, but uh, really I felt a call to God to pastoral ministry since I was a boy. And so I really kind of understand this college time as sort of a transition. I just can't wait to get to seminary. I want to I want to study the Bible. I want to study theology. You know, I'm interested in pastoral ministry. And from the very first Sunday that he learned that, he invited me uh, just didn't come into his life. We met every single Saturday that I was around, which was most Saturdays, every single Saturday for probably five years. Uh, and he just uh, mentored me, poured into me, gave me piled books upon me and had me read them and would uh, and, and we'd discuss them together and, and, and argue theology. And he just graciously uh, patiently sort of led me through, um, you know, an introduction to the doctrines of grace. And, uh, and, and he... He let me preach. It maybe wasn't the wisest thing of him, never having heard me preach before. I think that first year he let me preach in his church and uh, and let me teach over the years. And he let me try dumb and different things that I had a harebrained idea to try. You know, like I think I wanted to start like a, a dead theologian society at one point and like have people get together and I would read, you know, excerpts of, of the reformers and the Puritans, which sounded awesome to me. But uh, it, it didn't float everybody's boat. I couldn't figure out why. But um, it was a, he let me try that kind of stuff. He let me sit in on premarital counseling sessions. He let me help officiate funerals. He, when people would come into the church asking for help, he'd have me go and get groceries for them and with them and um, help me navigate criticism. And he drove me around to get coffee in his Honda Civic hatchback and he accidentally let a pound of butter melt in the back of it one time in the summer and it reeked. It just reeked of rancid butter and we would drive everywhere in this little hatchback and he just modeled the pastoral life for me. It was just uh, and that, that, that closeness, that intimacy, his willingness to sort of invest in me, to take me under his wing was so pivotal in my life. It was far more important than the academic exercise of seminary was. 
And Paul's closeness with Timothy here is an example not only of, you know, pastoral training. I'm not just, I don't just mean this in this kind of limited scope of raising up men for pastoral ministry. I mean it for all of us. It's just an example of basic discipleship, right? How do you and I grow in the faith? How do we encourage each other? How do we raise up leaders? How do we propagate gospel ministry? If we have, part of the answer is if we have similar relationships with each other. With other believers, sharing a closeness, sharing deep friendship, emulating each other as we follow Christ. And so I just wonder this morning, do you have spiritual friends? Maybe then for you, that's primarily in the, you know, centered around your family, and that's amazing, it's wonderful. Do you have others too? Are you as a church seeking to grow in this warmth, this spiritual intimacy and love for each other that then results in our pouring into each other? The second observation, verse 5, I think, is uh, the power of generational witness. Paul says, verse 5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. His mother Eunice was mentioned in Acts 16. Lois, we don't see anywhere else, I don't think, in in the Scripture. But Paul here reminds Timothy it was their faith that came first. And it was seated then in the young Timothy. And Paul himself has referenced his own ancestors. He says, they served God and I served God like them, the clear conscience with faith in the coming Messiah. And so Paul, I think, is kind of clarifying for us this power of generational witness, how profound it is to have a faithful and godly lineage. What a glorious thing. What an incredible gift to have a believing mom or a believing dad. I know there's something startling, there's something explosive about, you know, first-generation Christianity, where somebody comes to faith kind of untethered from that generational faith. I know that, that's, sort of, that's sort of the fireworks of, of evangelism, right? <laughs> you think of those really dramatic conversion stories. Uh, you know, I think of, um, I'll just share real briefly uh, uh, about one, another TPA student named, by the name of Jason Contino. He lives on Long Island in New York, a really weird happenstance of how he got into the program is uh, our church in Del Rapids was uh, the victim of some fraud, some financial fraud. Somebody got a hold of our bank account information, was writing fake checks, trying to trying to buy stuff off of Craigslist and whatnot, using checks that were written using our bank account information. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But uh, anyway, some of this fraud had been perpetuated in, in New York. And, uh, and there's this detective Jason uh, on the New York Police Department, who on his day off had seen this case come across his desk and had seen that it involved the church. And he, on his day off, just kind of thought, I'll call this church up, see how they're doing, see if they're kind of kept in the loop and just get to know them a little bit. And so he called River Community Church, where I'm on staff, and talked to our pastor, uh, our other pastor, Andy. And uh, and it came out that Jason, too, was a believer, though a pretty recent convert to Christianity. And um, and that he was interested in pastoral ministry, and that he was part of a church on Long Island, and and uh, we, we kind of you know Andy said, well it, you know if you're interested in ministry, we have this church-centered theological training program that you know who knows, <laughs> and, and so you know that's cool and all, haha, whatever. So a few years later, I get an email from Jason Contino. He says, hey Ryan, I'm retired from the police force, and I want to join the Timothy Pastoral Apprenticeship. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've never talked to this man in my life, you know, and. Um, and so, long story short, the Lord, again, knit our hearts together with theirs. And uh, and so, 
Harborview Christian Church on Long Island and Port Jefferson, New York is Timothy Pastoral Apprenticeship Partner Church. In fact, two Sundays ago, I was there at Jason's ordination. <laughs> he's He hasn't finished the program like Daniel has, but... Uh, <laughs> But uh, but he's on his way, and and he was uh, he went through an ordination council that I got to be part of. It was it was so incredible. Jason came to Christ out of the, he was a Jeho- raised as a Jehovah's Witness, and then walked away from that faith system uh, a number of years ago, and lived as an agnostic for a number of years until his next door neighbor and another friend who were Christians. Uh, told him the gospel and invited him to worship and and explain the uh, the truth of the divinity of Jesus and and he uh, he came to faith. I think this is about eight years ago. Uh, the first you know Bible believing Christian of his of his family, and um, he came to faith. And then his wife a few months later followed him and was baptized. And then their two boys who were in college uh, at the time came to faith. And we're baptized, and I spent the weekend at their home, and they are now, uh, both their boys are following the Lord. They're contagious evangelists. One of them is moving, he and his wife are moving to Nova Scotia to be part of a church plant in August. Um, and they just, they share the gospel seemingly everywhere they go. And, uh, uh, you know, stories like that are just so dramatic, so remarkable. You give so much praise to God for uh, this unbelievable work of conversion, and we praise God for those stories. And yet, Paul reminds us that it maybe doesn't have the same starkness, the same drama, but just as profound is godly faith passed down from one generation to another. For children to follow their parents and their grandparents in trusting Christ. In, at River Community Church in Del Rapids, where, I, where I'm on staff, we've had a number of young people who have been baptized in the last few years. Um, who they've told us, you know, as they meet with the elders, uh, as they prepare for baptism, they've told us uh, they can't even remember a time when they first put their faith in Jesus. <laughs> the gospel has just sort of been the air they breathe <laughs> growing up in their home where their mom and their dad believe and, uh, and talk about the faith. And that's such a beautiful thing. Uh, what a gift of God to have sincere faith in Christ displayed and urged from one's youth like Timothy had with his grandmother and his mother. And Paul contemplated that. He rejoiced over it in prayer. And I think we too ought to gratefully rejoice if that's our experience as well. Um, we should strive, I think, to see this in our own families. I know there's a number of young people here today. There are lots of kids here today uh, and those who are, are still in their childhood. And young people, I just want to say, um, you know, address you just real briefly. If your mom and your dad trust Jesus, if your mom and your dad love Christ, I just urge you to take that really seriously. You, you might get a little older and you might think, what does my dad know? What does my mom know? I want to chart my own way in life. I want to kind of figure this out on my own. And I get that a little bit. But I just want to say, don't be so hasty. Don't be quick to dismiss what your mom and your dad have made the center of their lives, that Jesus loves them and died for their sins and rose again, and that he loves you and he died for your sins and rose again. And if you will but put your faith in him and be saved, you too can have forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. And so listen, uh, as you see your mom and your dad love Jesus and follow him, listen to them. Uh, that's a gift of God to you. Don't shrug it off. Like so. I know dads are weird sometimes, right? They tell dumb jokes and they have weird quirks and they're into goofy stuff. 
right? Because I'm a dad too, and I'm totally weird and quirky, and I like weird stuff. Like, don't just don't just pass this off as one more of dad's quirks. Um, this is this is real. It's real, and I urge you to pay attention to it. Uh, dads in particular, I know there's lots of dads here today. You maybe see in the glaring absence of Timothy's dad in this text. What will be said of you? What will be said of me? Or not said. Do you honor God in your family? Do you set an example of humble, gentle, confident faith in Jesus? Do you lead your family to the green pastures of God's word and prayer and worship? Do you talk often about Christ openly, frankly, personally? I can gratefully mention my own dad uh, who raised me to know Jesus and love the Bible and care for others. He was a pastor of the same church in North Dakota for 30 years. Uh, since recently kind of retired and lives in Sioux Falls now. He modeled patience and faithfulness for me. He answered my questions with honesty. He always pointed me to the Bible. Um, and moms, grandmas, would you take heart from this passage? Would you take heart and encouragement from Paul's commendation of Lois and Eunice? God loves to use you. Even when the guy, even when the dad's not on the same page, even when he's a deadbeat, it doesn't break the godly mom's influence. You see the power of generational witness here. Verse 6, another observation. We see that God's gifts, and this is maybe the, the main emphasis here, God's gifts are to be exercised. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Paul draws attention to Timothy to a particular gift, right? The gift of God in you through the laying on of my hands. He's probably describing a special gifting for ministry that God had bestowed on Timothy when he was commissioned, when he was ordained, uh, as it were. In 1 Timothy 4.14, Paul reminded him, don't neglect the gift you have, which was excuse me, given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And so he has in mind seemingly some special, he obviously had some gifts of the Lord before this, and yet there was something special about that commissioning time for Timothy that God had really, in a powerful way, uh, equipped Timothy for the ministry that was before him. And Paul now draws attention to that and says, fan it into flame. It's such an evocative image. And what does it mean? I mean, how practically? How does Paul expect Timothy to do this, right? How do you fan into flame the gift of God? Isn't it that? Isn't it a gift? How do you fan into flame a gift? And I think he must mean that Timothy is called to do something to whip up, to stir up, to excite, to progress in the gift of God to him. Namely, I think to study for it, to practice it, to use it vigorously, and so keep it from atrophying. Um, last summer, I am on the board of a Bible camp in North Dakota. Went to the, went there when I was a kid. Met my wife there. Uh, you know, special place in my heart. And I was tasked to kind of be the director for a, a camp for junior high kids. That was sort of an outdoor adventure camp kind of deal. With uh, you sleep in tents uh, and you uh, you cook over a campfire and you learn some you know basic outdoor skills and 
do a bunch of kayaking and exploration and that kind of stuff. And so um, I got to do this last summer with junior high kids. I get to do it this summer too. And every night we'd have a big campfire. And in the morning we'd need that, we'd need a fire in order to cook our breakfast over, over the fire. We'd, we'd have these cast iron skillets and we'd make bacon and, and, uh, and pancakes and sausage and the skillets. And it was great. And, and so every morning I'd be up before everybody else and I'd go out, you know, rubbing the sleep out of my eyes and go out to the campfire site and there's no flame left it's just there's just a bed of ashes and if you've done any camping any and you're sitting around the fire you know how this is it's just a pile of smoking ash and some wood coals but if you get down low you get down close and you blow steadily and you add little bits of wood as you're blowing not too long Right? And suddenly the flame flickers up again. Suddenly the flame leaps up. Pretty soon you're blowing and you're adding more and more fuel to the fire, and there's a roaring fire again. And you're not generating something from nothing when you do this. You're just taking what's already there and exciting it. You're using it for its purpose. And Paul says, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. It's especially evocative, provocative, maybe for those of us who are roundly convinced of the absolute sovereignty of God and His ordinating of all things, right? If you're in that camp, you perhaps sometimes take a pretty dim view of human effort and striving. We're worried about putting so much overemphasis on human responsibility that we rob God of His glory, and we don't want to do that. That's a great impulse, and and yet we shouldn't be afraid, I think, or unwilling to talk and exhort how the Bible does. Paul here calls Timothy to the vigorous exercise of his ministry gifts, to take action, to take responsibility, to work hard at practicing what God has given him. And you, you, I, you and I as well, I think, need to hear that same call to action, to use God's good gifts to us, that we might bless others and serve the church and serve those around us. There are lots of spiritual gifts mentioned in the scriptures. I, th- I take from the fact that none of the gift lists that we find in Corinthians and Romans are uh, exactly line up. I, I take them as representative, I guess, of, uh, of the, the variety of sorts of ways that God gifts individuals he gifts you and me to serve his church you know i think of those gifts of exceptional faith or giving and generosity or hospitality or wisdom or administration i always felt bad for the people that got gifted with administration it seems like the boring one to me but uh, uh not my not my cup of tea but uh man i'm thankful for the lord to the lord for you uh or the gifts of just general service or evangelism or exhortation or leadership or healing. And you know, these aren't just for pastors. They're not just for your elders. Every believer is tasked and gifted to build up the church to serve those around you by the power and strength and gifting that God provides. And so if you're just sitting around, you're just feeding and feeding and feeding, but you never pour into anybody else or any other ministry, you know, you're going to be smart, you're going to be thoughtful, you're going to be very unhealthy. We're called to fan into flame, as Paul calls Timothy here, to fan into flame the gift of God. Um, John Calvin, in his comment on this passage, says um, that sometimes when you have excellent gifts, when you have really substantive, obvious gifting, it's easy to get careless about it. He says, excellence of gifts produces carelessness. And so some of you perhaps need to take a special 
thought to, uh, am I just coasting? Uh, do I, do I, am I just getting by on my kind of, you know, natural talent, the gift of God, but, you know, am I, am I kind of coasting on that or am I really exercising it? Am I putting in the work? Am I practicing? Um, now I took, when I was a young person, I took many years of piano lessons as a child. I didn't really appreciate it or like it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and I convinced my mom eventually to let me quit piano lessons by the time I hit high school. And um, I didn't touch the piano again for a number of years. And uh, it was great. <laughs> uh, our thought, anyway. And then years later, you know what I found? Years later, I found myself wishing desperately that I had even a little bit of my former skill. You know, you listen to Chopin or something. And your heart just soars. How can anybody write something so heartrendingly beautiful? I want to be able to play this. <laughs> I can't. I can't. Unless I, you know, rededicate, I forsake everything else and rededicate my life to piano. But, right? It's, it, that skill is it's atrophied, right? Or if you've broken a limb and you've had your, hand, your arm in a cast for six weeks and then they take the cast off, what does it look like? Like, oh! Like this one's all, it's just skin and bone. There's no muscle there anymore. You haven't exercised that, what was there. Fan into flame the gift of God. What if we, perhaps you do, Fellowship Bible Church, perhaps you do, but what if we thought of ourselves as living bellows, as a church full of hot coals and bellows, encouraging each other, strengthening, affirming, exulting in the progress and success of others, blowing on the coals of our gifts, fanning it into flame. You know, there are folks that work out every day. There are people that practice a sport for hours. They get up at, you know, unholy hours to work on their sports. What if you and I had the same sort of discipline and drive to do the things God has called us to do, individually gifted us to do? To push the metaphor just a little bit further, maybe fire would break out. Maybe there'd be more spiritual light and heat. The last observation on this text, verse 7, is that attitude is everything. God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. It's a little tricky to know what Paul means by spirit here, right? Uh, Does he mean spirit as in the very Holy Spirit with a capital S? And some translations do capitalize spirit here. Of course, there's no capitalization in the original Greek, and so it's a little bit of a translator's call. Um, Or is it something a little tamer, like more like, a spirit in the sense of an attitude, a mindset, a motivation. Well, look how Paul formulates it. He says, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So when he starts, he starts with this negative first. He hasn't given us a spirit of fear. Um, And that doesn't really sound like the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? It sounds more like an attitude, like a mindset. And yet he goes on then in the positive formulation and says what God has given, a spirit of Power and love and self-control. That formulation does sound quite a bit like the gift of the Holy Spirit himself and the fruits that he bears in our lives, and or at least the affections that are the direct result of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And so I wonder if there's something of an intended ambiguity here in Paul's writing. It means both. On the one hand, there's yes, the attitude, the motivation in us is not fear, but power, love, and self-control. And, and also... At the same time, those things, the power, love, and self-control are the very workings of the Holy Spirit living in us as believers. And it says, uh, God's Holy Spirit himself has imbued us with this 
power, love, and self-control. We need power because we're so weak and fragile on our own. We know that what opposes us as Christians can so many times seem insurmountable. We know that the devil and his minions are allied against us. Depending on how you read you know, Revelation 12 and 13, the, the, the dragon and the beasts from the land and the sea, I would argue that those are uh, evocative of the world systems of economic and governmental and even religious power that are allied against true Christianity. And, and then we have things like natural evil, like disease and cancer and disaster that breaks out frequently. And, and we have our own personal frailties and our stress and our besetting sins. And sometimes in church life, I hope this isn't, often for you, but I know that sometimes in church life, disagreement breaks out or conflict or relational tensions and friction arise. And it just sort of sucks all the joy and encouragement out of the room like a black hole. The bellows going to stop heaving. How are we going to make it? How are we going to make it to the end? How are you and I going to persevere in the ministry God's called us to together? We have to have God's power which He so abundantly gives us in the midst of our weakness. And indeed, God delights to make His power evident in the middle of our weakness. And yet, why does Paul include love and self-control in this list? He surely could have included other gifts, other fruits of the Spirit, in addition to power. Why love? Why self-control? And I wonder if it's because that power without love and power without self-control is very dangerous. What sort of fruit does sheer power bear if it's unaccompanied by these sort of tempering attitudes? I think it bears the fruit of impulsiveness or braggadocio or self-importance or lording it over others or a lack of pity or a lack of mercy or a lack of teachableness or a lack of self-reflection and reformation. It leads to monotony and to an overbearing character and running roughshod over others and And so, my sense is that in the American church today, we have a lot of Christians doing just fine with the spirit of power. Maybe not so well with the spirit of love, a spirit of self-control. Hop on social media for a few minutes. Check out the major figures, the major trends of American Christianity. I wonder how much self-control we see. Or would you say that charity really characterizes our engagement with a culture that's admittedly hostile, does charity characterize our engagement with one another? We tend to get excited about power. And then we throw in love and self-control, almost as sort of grudging add-ons to the list. But we must take care, I think, that as we fan the gifts of God into flame in our lives, powered by this divine power of God, uh, we still seek to amplify, exemplify uh, the, just how strongly the spirit of love and self-control are called to be manifest in our lives. So, brothers and sisters, uh, I just want to exhort you one last time as I'm exhorting myself. Let's strive for these things. Let's strive for spiritual closeness and intimacy with one another. Let's have gratitude to God for faith passed down from generation to generation and not take that for granted. Let's use and exercise vigorously the the gifts that God has given to each one of us to serve one another. And let's do it all in the power of God firing us, even with love, and self-discipline characterizing our lives and our attitudes. Let me pray for you. 
Our Lord, thank you for the gospel this morning. Thank you again for Jesus Christ and for uh, the truth that you uh, looked down at us and on us and saw us even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Even while we were your enemies, Christ died for us. And that he didn't stay dead, but he rose again. He conquered the grave. He conquered sin and death and hell. He's the firstborn of the dead, the one in whom we have all our hope. So we now come again, putting all our hope and trust in him, banking on Jesus, banking everything on Jesus, Lord. Apart from Jesus, we have no good. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And so, Lord, help us now, in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to fan into flame the gifts that you have poured out on your church. Lord, for these dear uh, men and women and children, for these brothers and sisters this morning at Fellowship Bible Church, would they uh, know and see the gifts of God fanned into flame in their midst in the coming days, weeks, months, years, Lord, and into eternity. May you pour these things out on them and bless them that way. Bless them richly. May you protect them from the onslaught of uh, of evil and whatever might threaten to undo them, Lord, and uh, may they keep their eyes firmly fixed on their Savior Jesus. And may I as well. In his name we pray. Amen.